From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today we're talking about forests and wetlands and how genes impact planned growth of these biomes. Steve Strauss's research focuses on genetically modified trees. Karin Kettenring's lab focuses on protecting and restoring wetlands. The wetland ecologist and the forest biotechnologist. That's Undisciplined, after the news. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The idea of our show is simple. We bring two scientists from different fields together and, well, then we just see what happens. Often on the show, we're not sure how our guests will connect, even though they usually do. Today, we've gathered together two people who work in different fields and for different purposes, but whose research overlaps in several fascinating ways. On the line with us from Corvallis, Oregon today is Steve Strauss, a runner, a mountain biker, a soccer referee whose genetic transformation lab has produced thousands of transgenic trees. His recent study in Frontiers in Bioengineering and Biotechnology demonstrated that genetic engineering can be used to keep trees from growing where they're not supposed to grow. Hey, Steve. Good morning, Matthew. And with us today in studio is Karin Kettenring, whose recent editorial in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment argues that we need to invest more fully in the protection of wetlands, and whose new study in Restoration Ecology found that if you're trying to restore wetland vegetation, ducks just might be one of your best friends. Hi, Karin. Hi, great to be here. First up today, the forest biotechnologist. That is Burt Bacharach's theme song from the really bad 1958 horror movie The Blob, which starred an early Steve McQueen as a young man trying desperately to warn people of a big red gelatinous monster that grows and grows and grows and cannot be stopped. The sort of fear that was at the heart of the blob is also at the heart of a lot of people's concerns about genetically modified organisms, like the hybrid poplar trees that our first guest researches. Steve Strauss, this all might sound funny, but there are quite a few people out there who are worried about how far transgenic trees might spread. And that might be because your lab actually created a poplar hybrid that grows faster and is resistant to a lot of the things that kill other poplar trees. Can you take us back and talk about the genesis of that research? Poplar trees are grown all over the world for energy, in agroforestry systems, for helping to clean up the environment like pollutants from agriculture. The Department of Energy has considered them a potentially major biofuels crop in the United States. When we grow them, we grow them very intensively. They're agricultural crops in the Northwest. They're cloned, they're hybridized species from all over the world or moved around to try to get the highest productivity, the highest yields, the uh, best pest resistance, the best wood. So these poplar trees are you know, potentially important for a lot of social goals. And so they're a tree, unlike a lot of other trees, that are sort of ready for the next step in genetics that might be more precise and to take us places faster or places we couldn't go. And so uh, my lab, is, as you mentioned, has done some of that research. But also we have wild poplars growing in the, in the Pacific Northwest. And many people who are environmental-minded, including myself, don't like much the idea that the genes from the engineer trees might mix with wild populations. And so we thought it would be wise to also develop containment technology to help increase public acceptance, to help avoid the possibility of a negative side effect. 
So, Steve, in this latest research, you've demonstrated that these hybrids, they can be contained. Essentially, they can be kept from moving off the plantations where they're planted. And you do this by a bit of additional genetic hacking. Essentially, you wanted to make these babies sterile, right? That's right. Yep. And, and how yeah. did you do that? <laughs> in this current study, we used a technique that was developed about 10 plus years ago called RNAi or RNA interference. It's a very powerful technique. It uses a natural mechanism for turning down genes. So we used it to turn down a tree's own flowering genes. We know about some genes that are essential for flowering pretty much in all plants. And the RNAi was able to turn those genes down low enough and do it in a stable manner year after year so we didn't get fertile flowers. So you basically, you're able to turn these genes on and off, kind of like a, a amplifier, an electric guitar, like turn it down, turn it up? Exactly. It's like a rheostat. This technique gives you a wide range of suppression from hardly any to down to almost zero. We were also interested in how they grew because in turning down these flowering genes, we wanted to make sure there was no negative effects on productivity or or, uh, adaptation. And indeed, we could see none. Right. And because you went in there, you messed with a bunch of the DNA. You got to do it with precision. Otherwise, these trees are going to look differently. They're going to act differently than the ones that you were trying to grow to begin with, right? Exactly. And these techniques, you can do it with amazing precision. The other techniques for making trees sterile that have been used previously would be white hybrids or using radiation to damage chromosomes. So far, far less precise than we can do today with uh, RNA interference. And which are the genes that you targeted on these particular trees? There's a number of genes in that publication in Frontiers. Two of the ones that are most advanced is uh, one is called Leafy. And it's called leafy because when you turn down that gene in annual plants, they don't make flowers, but they keep making leaves. So they get quite bushy compared to the wild type. Another gene was a gamut, so no gametes. When you turn down that gene, you get flowers, but the stamens and carpels, the male and female parts, don't develop, can't make seeds or pollen. You started this project before CRISPR, which has really revolutionized DNA editing. It's made it a lot easier. How has CRISPR changed things in your lab? Yeah, you know, so this Frontiers paper was about a plantation that was about eight years old, how these different genes worked and how stable they were and how it affected the growth. In the meanwhile, we've been working with gene editing techniques, and CRISPR is the latest one of those. CRISPR is by far the best and most powerful And so that allows you to do a similar thing to RNAi, but here we're actually breaking the genes. We're mutating them in a very, very specific way. So it's not just dialed down. If you make a mutation that uh, cuts out a key part of the gene or gives you a frame shift, that protein just doesn't work at all. It's not even made or it's just completely messed up. And also the chances of, of it reverting are far, far low, exceedingly low, perhaps like being hit by a bolt of lightning or something even lower than that. It's, it's more precise, it's more efficient, and we think it's much more stable. Steve, the letters GMO make a lot of people nervous, but you've argued we need to reframe the way we think about genetic modification. Can you talk about that a little? Scientists in the United States for decades have resisted using GMO, even though that's sort of the common parlance in the public and around the world, because essentially all of our agricultural crops and some of our forest crops are intensively genetically modified. And the poplars are an example where we're using hybrids that would never occur in nature. We're cloning them. We're uh, growing them in management systems that look nothing like a natural system. 
So in the USA, we like to use at least the scientific community, GE, genetic engineering or GEO, to say it's really a method. It's not that we're doing modification for the first time. But unfortunately, in the public sphere, I think you're right, GMO has a negative connotation. And you see increasingly on, in the grocery store a GMO-free label, which is used to connote that the food is somehow purer and better, which is not true. But it's very, very commonplace to have it there. Now, there, there's one way in which these poplars would not be controlled, and that's because poplars are clonal. And in addition to sexual reproduction, they can also spread underground through root systems that spread out and they send up new shoots. Theoretically, could you go in and and reprogram the tree to not spread clonally as well? You could do that. That would also be tricky because these trees are vegetatively propagated and they're propagated by rooting of cuttings. And so if you were going to inhibit the root development, you'd need to do it in a way that doesn't also inhibit propagation, which could be done. And I think that might be a next step for sort of where the science and technology will go. But when people grow these plantations, they're very intensive. There's a lot of technology that goes into it. And, in fact, in growing these plantations with the USDA uh, permit that we had, it's very easy to monitor them for local spread and, and remove the sprouts. So we don't really need to worry about that very much as long as we manage it properly. That's Steve Strauss, whose recent study in Frontiers in Bioengineering and Biotechnology demonstrated that one method to address people's concerns about genetically modified trees is through further genetic modification. Steve, can you stick around for a bit to talk to our next guest? Be very happy to. Thank you, Matthew. Next up, the wetland ecologist. Garrett Hank is up river in New Bern, North Carolina, where we're told the water is already rising. What are you looking at there, Garrett? Yeah, Lester, we've been talking about this storm surge for weeks. This is what it looks like. This is the Noose River behind me, or at least it normally is, about 50 feet that way. Starting about four hours ago with no real help from wind or rain, the surge pushed some of that water up over its banks, and it has completely flooded this street here in Newburn. You can just barely see the top of that fire hydrant there. Now, as we're starting to get into the storm, starting to get some of that rain, starting to get some of that wind, you can see the problem. That water just has no place to go. And that is a recording of NBC reporter Garrett Hawk doing what is now a pretty cliche news report, standing waist deep in a street flooded as a result of the storm surge from Hurricane Florence earlier this year. These sort of reports have been dominating news cycles in recent years. The U.S. had its most catastrophic hurricane season ever in 2017 with hundreds of billions of dollars in damages. But in an editorial in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, our next guest argues that one way to mitigate damages caused by climate disasters is to invest in the restoration of wetlands. And in a new study in Restoration Ecology, her team found that one way to do that is to team up with waterfowl. Karin Kettenring, let's start with the editorial. In it, you and your colleagues write that, among other benefits, wetlands can buffer wave energy, which can reduce the impact of storms in coastal regions. But society is yet to recognize and incorporate these disaster risk reductions into natural resource policies and land use planning. There's a lot to unpack there, but maybe we can just start with this. Why do you think we ignore wetlands so much? 
I think for a long time we have focused on wetland protection because we see the importance of wetlands for waterfowl. But for some reason, I think we don't see what wetlands can do for us in terms of droughts and flooding and hurricanes. And I think there's this disconnect between what's happening on the ground with what wetlands can do and these natural disasters that are dominating the news cycles. But for some reason, I think society has not been able to connect what we've done, uh, what we've done in terms of draining wetlands versus what wetlands can do to actually mitigate those impacts. Well, let's talk a little bit about what they can do to mitigate the impacts. Because I, I mentioned it briefly here, but you can go into greater detail. These things, are, they're like the superheroes of our environment protecting us against climate disasters. Right. I think there's some nice visuals for what wetlands can do. One of them is basically if you envision a gigantic sponge, you know, when we have big storm surges or we have big flood events, big rain events, there has to be a place where water can go. Wetlands are naturally these gigantic sponges in the landscape. They can also actually help mitigate drought. One of the things we're seeing with climate change is that we're seeing a shift from snow to precipitation to rain in the winter. Historically, snow would stay up in the mountains and slowly melt over the course of the growing season, but this rain runs off the land much more quickly. So things like wetlands higher up in our mountain areas can be a natural reservoir for storing water and releasing it more slowly to help mitigate the effects of drought during the growing season, during the hottest time of year when we really need that water. Now, I gather there's a lot of things that threaten wetlands. What are some of the biggest dangers? Well, the biggest danger is just complete loss of wetlands through destruction. So paving over them, filling them, dredging them. But then, you know, even wetlands that we have set aside and protected, they can be impacted by a variety of things, one of which is invasive species, which is part of what my research focuses on, but also things like impacts to water quality. Now, if we're going to restore wetlands, seeds are a vital concern. In your recent study, you and your colleagues wanted to understand where to collect seeds and how they grow. And this has a lot to do with gene flow. Can you talk a little bit about why gene flow is so important? Right. So we're looking at, for instance, on Great Salt Lake, the need to restore hundreds and hundreds of acres of wetlands. To be able to do that, the traditional techniques would actually have been to plant seedlings or transplant rhizomes, these underground stem chunks, basically. But the scale of the restoration that we're facing is so large that using seeds is really the best strategy here. And so a really important question that scientists interested in restoration are focusing on is if we're going to use seeds, where should we be getting them from? There are different camps here. Some people are really focused on local is best. So you need to get the seeds from very near your restoration site. But other people are suggesting that because some species actually naturally disperse very broadly, they have wide ranging gene flow. So it actually might be more appropriate to source seeds from further away. And that actually is a strategy that people that are focused on climate change adaptation are also talking about, because if we just source seeds from right nearby, those genotypes might not be adapted to future climate conditions. So with increasing temperature, increasing drought, perhaps we should be looking at getting seeds from Arizona for Utah. We need to find some super seeds. We do. You sampled the genetic diversity of seeds from three different wetland plants. What were those plants and why were those plants important to you? 
Those three plants are three different species of bulrushes. They're all not very descript, but they're, they each play an important role in terms of habitat. They provide nesting habitat for birds. They provide habitat for invertebrates, habitat for algae to grow on. They each are part of the ecosystem. And where I work in Great Salt Lake wetlands, these are the most important aquatic ecosystems in the region for migratory birds. When birds are flying all the way up from Alaska and Canada down to Central and South America, they're stopping and using these wetlands, and those bulrush species are part of the important habitat for those birds. And then along the way, you begin to suspect that the way these plants grew might have something to do with these waterfowl that are coming through and eating them. Can you take us through this part of the study? One of the species, it's called alkali bulrush. We were hearing from managers that this was a really important species for habitat on Great Salt Lake. And there was interest in trying to increase the amount of alkali bulrush, particularly after we removed this invasive species, Phragmites. So I thought, oh, great. Okay, we'll do some research on the seeds and we'll grow different genotypes of the plants and, you know, get, get a better sense of the ecology of the species. But for about five years, I could not get the stupid seeds to grow at all. It was seriously the bane of my existence. And it wasn't until I had a graduate student that came back from an amazing duck hunting weekend, and he had brought his ducks back. He opened up the gizzards, and inside were literally hundreds of alkali bulrush seeds. And this light bulb um, went off in my head, and I thought, wow, maybe this is part of the key for getting these seeds to actually germinate. So we took those seeds, we put them in the greenhouse, and they germinated right away. And so literally the species I could not get to grow at all for five years, we had hundreds of seedlings growing. One of the things the study shows is that if we're going to restore wetlands, we really need to mimic natural systems. The waterfowl digestion in this case is important to breaking dormancy in these species. Dormancy is an interesting thing. A lot of plants have this unique adaptation to basically prevent seeds from germinating right before the onset of winter. Because that's, you know, if you're a tiny little seedling, that's not a good time to be out and vulnerable to the elements. So in this particular species, though, this dormancy seems to be linked to waterfowl. And the seeds apparently require partial digestion by waterfowl to break that dormancy so that they can germinate and grow. That's Karin Kettenring, whose recent editorial in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment argues that we need to invest more fully in the protection of wetlands, and whose new study in Restoration Ecology addressed several ways for restoring wetlands. Can you stick around to chat with our first guest? Yes, definitely. Well then, Karin, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to forest biotechnologist Steve Strauss. And Steve, this is wetlands ecologist Karin Kettenring. Hello, Karin. Hi, Steve. Good to meet you. Same here. Guys, often on this show, I'm not precisely sure what connections our two guests are going to make between their different research areas, but there's plenty of overlap here. Steve, maybe we can start with you. You were listening in as I chatted with Karin. What did you hear that sparked your interest? Well, I thought it was all extremely interesting. The last point you were talking about with the seed dormancy, really uh, fascinating. I teach some classes here instead of the history issues in in biotechnology, and one of the things we cover is how plants were domesticated for agriculture. And the key thing is getting past their natural dormancy requirements. And we do that through genetics. We try to breed that out so a farmer can plant it when they want and get the response they want. In some cases, you need to remove the seed coat. And that sounds a bit like what might be happening in the gizzard, 
of these waterfowl is perhaps they're removing the seed coat or scarifying it, so then you can get water in and nutrients and dormancy can be bypassed. Yeah, that's, I think, exactly what's happening with the digestion. We haven't figured out the exact chemical composition or the exact scarification, that physical breaking down of the seed coat that you're talking about. But one of our goals is to be able to break dormancy. We can't really go and bring in a big flock of waterfowl and have them in our lab. So instead, we tried different bleach treatments, different acid treatments, and actually even trying to scarify the seeds with sandpaper. And in the end, it was basically just giving them a bleach treatment. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. And in your point about domestication for agriculture and how part of the goal is to remove dormancy so the species are easier to work with, that's something that is a constant barrier for restoration is how to break dormancy in native species so that when you have a blank canvas for a restoration and a restoration practitioner goes out there and wants to sow the seeds of their target species, they want the seeds to grow right away before invasive species get in there. So we're constantly looking for different ways to break seed dormancy and to be able to get seeds to grow right away uh, so we can reestablish native species. If I could make one other point about that that I think raises a broader issue, So we know some of the genes that are involved in dormancy in a lot of plants. A lot of them are conserved. So one could imagine going in and perhaps uh, knocking out a gene that imposes dormancy in in these wild plants and then making it easier to spread them and restore these wetlands. And that would be very feasible. Uh, One of the the problems to that is sort of the, the regulation of things that are genetically engineered. And right now it would be extremely difficult to use that technique to help Corin go ahead and domesticate or at least help spread this wild species by modifying this one trait very specifically. But it's the kind of thing I think from a science point of view we'd like to do it would be a synergy between the two fields, but these sort of institutional legal factors make it really difficult to, to apply it. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. I think as an ecologist, I don't think we actually would want to get rid of that dormancy in these native species, though, because it does play a role, you know, five or 10 or 100 years down the line as the species is regenerating from seed, actually having that dormancy as part of a redeveloping natural population is an important part of its survival. So in restoration, we have this kind of weird in-between time period where we're doing some level of engineering, but we don't want to do too much engineering because ultimately the hope is that the plant population would be naturally sustaining. One of the things where I would see a role of what you're talking about is with the invasive species that I work with, Phragmites, it's a grass that was introduced from Eurasia. One of the biggest challenges is that we don't have a lot of techniques for controlling it. And right now, unfortunately, the best technique for controlling it is using herbicide and mostly glyphosate, which is what's in Roundup and Rodeo and mixed up in all these lawsuits with Monsanto and so forth. So that's a pretty loaded approach for trying to address this invasive species. Maybe there are ways to alter the reproduction of the species. So one you know, imaginable technique would be to use CRISPR to uh, create a gene drive. People are very actively doing this, say, to combat malaria, and there are actual field applications around the world where the idea is to put it into the organism, and then the gene drive basically might knock out 
a critical gene for rhizome production or for seed production or both. It would be no problem to target several genes in the current kinds of gene drive, and then they spread in the population. It's a little bit complicated to figure out, and I don't know enough about Phragmites to say whether that's appropriate. Well, there's two, uh, two big limitations. One is it's very new science and technology, so there's a lot to learn before we can really apply it. The other one is institutional and social. You know, is that an acceptable means? Third would be, would be an ecological one. Does Phragmites also mate with species that have important ecological functions, or does it itself have important functions in some places? Because once you start a gene drive, it's difficult to recall it. It can be done, but it's difficult. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point, because in addition to this Eurasian form of Phragmites, we actually have a native subspecies here in Utah. And that's one of the main arguments right now against biocontrol for Phragmites. So there's um, a research group that's really focused on insect pests for controlling Phragmites, but there's really no way that they're going to be able to keep those insect pests just on the non-native genotypes from Europe you know, and keep the native subspecies that's also in New England from also being decimated by those insect pests. So with invasive species, there there's no one answer. I'm always thinking about what are the different tools in the toolbox that managers can use, and there's going to be positives and negatives with each of them. I also was wondering your point about the effectiveness of this um, genetic modification depends on how long-lived a species is. And Phragmites, once it's established, it's not unlike some of the tree clonal species that you work with, that it is very stable and could potentially live you know, decades, if not hundreds of years. So you might be able to, to address new seedlings that were coming up if they, from pollination, are genetically modified. But the existing Phragmites stands, I think, would be very hard to control. Guys, I hate to do this because there's nothing I love more than when two scientists get talking and I don't have to. But I've got to break this up because we're out of time. Karin Kettenring, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks. It was great to be here. And Steve Strauss, thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. And thank you, Corin. Really uh, enjoyed t- talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Hope our paths cross again. Thanks. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.